Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. To learn more about our church, please visit us online by visiting ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. As we jump into today's message, our hope and our prayer is that you'd be challenged and encouraged in your walk and relationship with Jesus. Now, let's jump into the word together. So glad that you're here. I'm going to preach from behind the TV this morning. No. So glad that you're here. We are going to take a small pause. Um, If you've been here for the last few weeks, you've been seeing we've been walking through a sermon series that I've called, uh, That Doesn't Make Sense. And we're talking about, you know, big arching, the heart for the house top initiative, where for us to remain who we are, for us to keep our mission to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to rethink our space uh, in that. And so we're going to pause from all of that because uh, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? So on January 22nd, 1984, I was a negative one in three days. You can do the math. I'd be like, really, you're that young? Yes, I am. Thank you. I appreciate that. President Ronald Reagan issued a presidential proclamation designating that the third Sunday of January, or close to that, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And so pastors, churches, life organizations across the U.S. use this day to bring awareness to the attacks that are daily waged against human life through the abortion industry. And one of the best ways we can protect unborn lives is by bringing into the light the darkness of abortion, supporting local pregnancy help organizations who daily reach women and families with messages of hope and life. And so if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 139. Some of you Bible students know where I'm going. And so this morning we're gonna pause and look at this topic of sanctity of life and how do we, as followers of Jesus who apprentice Christ, who apprentice Jesus with our lives, how do we respond to that? How do we align our life, our values to his heart? And the things that break God's heart, how does it break our hearts? And so I think it is, it is good. Now this morning, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I see some young ones in here. It's gonna be heavy. It's gonna be deep intellectually, emotionally, and spiritual. Call it. It's a hard topic to talk about. But I think the church needs to be talking about it. Because what's really easy is we wanna separate ourselves from it. Because that's the easy thing to do, to put some distance between us, to provide a little bit of comfort in that so we don't have to, like, if we can keep the issue we remove, then, you know, oh, I, I'm not that educated in it, or it doesn't affect me. You know, some people you would even say that about me, like, well, you're a guy. How can you speak into that issue? You, you, well, last time I checked, biology, it takes two to tango, right? You know what I mean? So, like, I feel like the male counterpart can speak into it. But more than anything, as a community and as a nation, it's a moral issue. And all of our, of us, all of its citizens of a nation should be able to speak into the morality of a nation, That's why it is an us issue. It's not just a women's issue. It is an us issue because we're speaking to the morality of our country and of the law. And if I say anything this morning and my stance, my biblical stance of pro-life that offends you, I don't care. You guys getting wondering about the bell? You guys 
taking the off in that every one of you pulling out your phones. I know I silenced that, right? <laughs> then you're looking over at your neighbor and be like, oh, it's that sinner over there, isn't it? And then the, and the one thing that we love to do in church life, right? Anything, anytime the sound doesn't work perfectly, we all look back at the sound guy. <laughs> be like, what's that jerk doing back there? In uh, last year, in 2023, there were 878,000 abortions performed in our country. So if you do the math, that's one every 35 seconds, every time that bell rings. You hate the bell, don't you? Because again, what we try to do is we think it's somewhere else kind of an issue and it's not us. It doesn't affect our community. It doesn't affect our homes. It doesn't affect, and it's like, no, no, no. It's not that we as Christians and, and followers of Jesus and as churches, we need to go out and, and try to kick down doors and have this fight and it's on our doorsteps. There it is again. The audio will only go about seven, eight minutes or whatever. So if it's really distracting, it should be. And you can just do the math, you know, if I preach for 40 minutes and every 35 seconds. That's how prevalent the issue is in our country. And how can we uh, hold a, a word of God that says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, Micah 6, 8, to seek justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, and not seek and speak out against the greatest injustice of our country. And so it is a heavy topic. And it should mess with you. Because we're not talking about something that's the minority, the few and the you know, far and few between. It's very prevalent to our world. And not only how prevalent it is, how important is the issue? You know, we, we follow a person named Jesus who is the author and the giver of life. And we're talking about something that is trying to erase the very thing that he does. And so we have to see it through a spiritual component because that's the only way that we can. Because if he is the author and the giver of life and we as humans try to step into his role and take life, this is idolatry. And so you can end the audio at any point so that the ladies can pay attention through the rest of it because I know that's emotionally to think about. But I think it's a great awareness for us. So if you have your Bible, Psalm 139. I love the Psalms. It's David writing and, and at some points he's like massively depressed and crying and other times he's, you know, you, you hear this victory and confidence that he has in the Lord and it's everything in between. So if you're like, my life is like an emotional roller coaster, read the Psalms. You're in good company, right? But David writes, he says, he's speaking to the Lord. He's having this personal conversation, journaling per se. And he says, for you formed my inward parts, Psalm 139, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Think about that. Wonderful are your works. Is there just nothing 
more amazing than seeing a newborn baby. And my soul knows it very well. How David would say it is intrinsically in each and every one of us. There's things that we know without being told that that moral law per se written on our hearts. There's this, there's value, there's something intrinsically that we know that that life is just amazing and our soul knows it very well. It just resonates within us. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so David is talking unto the Lord, and look at how David sees the Lord responding to him. That even before I was, or even when I was being intricately woven in my mother's womb, you saw me in full personhood. He didn't say you were your wonderful works as you're knitting this clump of cells. You're not shaping this blob of tissue. He saw full personhood. That is the Lord's view of the unborn. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hit the front on different levels. We're going to talk scientifically. And this is going to feel like biology class. And you're going to feel like, what does this have to do with God? And I came to church, not science class. Because we have to understand, faith and science are not in tension with each other. They actually very well together. And so we can't theologically and just uh, vocally say, oh, yes, I believe in creation and God creates all of us. And then struggle through this because, and then at times what we find is, you know, uh, when the rubber meets the road, uh, do we really believe in creation? Or is our theory of evolution kind of hiding and we got to tuck it back in there? Is it exposed? Do we believe that God created us? And so it's good to walk through this process and understand when does life begin? Because It's general revelation is what the Bible would call it. General revelation is not just we look at the mountains and the skies and the sun and the stars and think, oh, yes, there is a creator that we can even look in the, not just in the microscope or the telescope, but also the microscope. And we can look at the small things of life and see that same hand of God in the created order. And so we're merely recognizing, articulating, labeling the work of God in bringing life on earth and through us as, as humans. So we're going to get kind of scientific about it. And then we're going to push back on some of the arguments because, again, what's easy to think is um, uh, those that are pro-choice would look at Christians who I hope would be pro-life and, and it's only a faith conversation. Well, yeah, of course, that's what the Bible says. You have to believe that. And, but there's no way, you know, you can't really argue against us scientifically. Actually, I think there's great arguments scientifically for life. And, and, and the destruction of life is what this abortion is causing. And so uh, I got a slideshow. We always kind of geek out when you see the TV. 
I need to see it a little bit. Sorry, there we go. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, Tyler, you want to run through? So when does life begin? Now, many of you don't know this, and that's okay. When I came to Calvary, I was actually pursuing a doctorate in apologetics. And I was a couple classes in, and then I got hired. And I was like, oh, praise the Lord, I got out of school, right? I was looking for any excuse not to go to class and be like, hire me, please. I just want to do it. No, so I put school on hold because I thought I just need to be a pastor right now. And so I put that on hold, but I was getting a doctor in apologetics, and one of the classes that I was taking uh, was contemporary issues. And, and out of that was, I had to, I had to research, study, and, and write about the topic of abortion from a Christian biblical worldview. And not just from the word of God, but also from the scientific world. So if you're sitting down, you know, with one of those doctors or somebody that wouldn't necessarily hold to the word of God, how do we engage somebody, again, with our faith, but on a plane that they would talk about? And so when does life begin? Next slide. That's the big question. A uh, little humor here. You got the, uh, uh, the clergy saying, well, life begins at the moment of conception. You have the government saying, oh, it's at birth. And you have the teenager when you get your driver's license. Amen. Right. And so next slide. Now, my pediatric nursing will come out a little bit, but this is pretty much what we're seeing. So when we hear clump of cells or a glob of tissue and different things like that, uh, just understand you know, three months into pregnancy by 13 weeks. This is, this is first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. Those are actually uh, real pictures, real graphics. And so nine months pregnant, anywhere from 39 to 42 weeks gestation. Um, right now, uh, most abortions happen right in here. Right? So within the first six weeks, um, it's 43%. And then once you go to nine weeks, you get another 36%, and by 20 weeks, another 13% of abortions are committed in there. So uh, last time I checked, that really doesn't look like a glob of tissue. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll do the full slideshow, Tyler, uh, instead of skipping parts like we did last service. So next slide, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through that a little bit more. Now, Dr. Alan Guttmacher, however you pronounce his last name, and I really don't care to get it right, he said, and this is in 1933 as a leader of Planned Parenthood, he said, we of today know that man is born of sexual union, that he starts life as an embryo within the body of a female, and that that embryo is formed from the fusion of two cells, the ovum and the sperm. And this seems so simple and evident to us that it is difficult to picture a time when it was not part of common knowledge. Don't like the guy, but I agree with them. Makes sense. Let's see what 40 years of Planned Parenthood do to your ideas. So in 1973, same dude. Scientifically, we all know is all that we know is that a living human sperm unites with a living human egg. If that were not living, there could be no union. Does human life begin before or with the union of the gametes or with birth or at some intermediate time? I, for one, confess I do not know. Wow. If you don't know that, then I would remove these two letters from the fronts of your stinking name. What happened 40 years ago? What now, now you could start to see just a little bit of the hypocrisy of that pro-choice movement. That it is, they're not rooted in science at all. They're changing because it's another platform. And I think far more, not political, but spiritual. And so next slide for me. 
So we're looking at this scientific view of when life begins. This is going to be the geek out nerd biology class uh, test will be on Friday. So make sure you take copious notes. Next slide. All right. So therefore, in considering the question of when a new life, human life begins, it's an answer of when. Next slide. That's what we're looking at. There's two criteria, scientifically, that distinguishes cell types. What we're looking at is what it's made of, which is called its molecular composition, and also the differences in how the cell behaves. So what it's made up of and how it acts. That's what we want to look at. And throughout the scientific community, those two criteria, universally agreed upon. They are not religious in belief or a matter of personal opinion. It's objective, verifiable scientific criteria. And they determine precisely when a new cell type is formed, right? And you'll see how we kind of string this whole thing together. So the fusion, the joining of sperm and ovum produces a new cell type. We call it a zygote or a one cell embryo, fetus, baby. Right? Uh, fetus is just the Latin word for baby. So when people are like, want to call it that to try to deaden it, it it's actually their ignorance coming out because they don't understand that's the Latin word for baby. So you're just saying baby in another language. Therefore, this new cell has a unique molecular composition that is distinct from either gamete, meaning the sperm or the ovum. And so this zygote is not just more of the same, let it be sperm cell or ovum cell, it is something new and different. And so when it comes into existence at the moment of that fusion, or we call conception, it meets the first scientific criteria for a new cell type. Its molecular makeup is clearly different than the cells that gave rise to it. Next slide. So these events rapidly occur after that fusion, after that conception in the zygote that does not normally occur in any other individual sperm ovum. So it has to come together, right? There's no uh, changes if there's not that fusion. And so it initiates a change in its eternal internal state and it blocks additional sperm from binding to the cell and it opposes the function of the gametes from which it's derived. So it, you know, the ovum and the sperm cease to be that because now it's something new. It's not more of the same. It is something new that happens at that moment of fusion. And they've actually done studies uh, that we can see under the microscope that at that moment of fusion, of conception, there's actually a little flash of light that happens. And we understand the light of life. Very biblical. So clearly the zygote has entered a new pattern of behavior and therefore meets our second scientific criterion. So it changes its molecular uh, makeup and it's starting to behave differently, right? So unlike, okay, so like your, your skin cells, you get new skin cells every 28 days. So when you dust your house, you think that's like dog hair and stuff. No, that's skin cells, you know? And, and pretty much your whole family's just shedding all over yourself and you vacuum it up. Be like, ah, it's dusty in here. Just start calling it what it is. Be like, it's skin celly in here. <laughs> you know, like, I'm cleaning my house 24-7, right? You're never going to invite people over. Be like, I don't want your skin cells in my house. Weirdos, right? And your body replaces them with more skin cells. And those are just a part of the whole. It's not something new. So like, you know, cells divide and you create new cells, but it's more of the same. We're here with a zygote, this one cell embryo, this one cell baby, it's something different. It's not more of the same. There's something unique in that fusion that uh, starting at conception that starts a new cell and it starts behaving differently. So next slide. 
So is it merely another human cell, like your skin, liver, muscle, or is it something new? And, and the nature of that new cell that comes into existence upon what is that nature? And so next question, these are the questions we're answering. So science distinguishes between different types of cells, and it also makes clear distinction between, and here's the key, between cells and organisms. So if I like, reached in, ripped out a piece of my liver and threw it up on the table there, you wouldn't be like, oh, what's that organism there? No, that's a glob of tissue. That's a glob of cells. Because all it is is liver cells. But if you were to take out of a mother's womb that one cell baby, that's an organism. That's, it's, it's scientifically, that is different. And so it, an organism displays unique characteristics that can reliably, and it's key right there, it's not some crazy chaotic thing, it's very reliable and distinguishes them from mere cells. Next slide. So we're only gonna look at the top definition, but they're both good because we're talking about it's a living being. But an organism, unlike cells, it's a complex structure of interdependent and subordinate elements whose relation and properties are largely determined by their function in the whole. And so even that one cell baby, that embryo, that fetus, that is a whole human is what we're arguing for. Next slide. So the definition stresses the interaction of the parts in the context of a coordinated whole as the distinguishing feature of an organism. So organisms are living beings. Therefore, another name for a human organism is a human being. So when you have that one cell, uh, embryo, baby, fetus, that is a living human being, a living human organism. Right? It's an entity that is complete human rather than the parts of a human. So when we see that, all that is is a very early stage of human development. Unlike if I just ripped out a piece of my liver, that's not in a stage of human development. You don't just leave the liver, you know. If you put that into a mother's womb, super gross right now, like, that's not going to be good. It's not going to grow anything. But, if you, but again, that, that zygote, that embryo, that fetus, you put that in a mother, it's going to grow because it's a complete human. Next slide. So the same criteria differentiates human beings from human cells, kind of what we've already talked about. And so a human being is uh, an organism. It's different than a mere collection of cells. Because when we say things like that, oh, it's just a clump of cells. It's just a glob of tissue. Well, I'll apply that to you. So I should be able to take out a Glock 45, smoke your head, clean off, because you're just a glob of cells, technically, am I not? Right? Well, no, you can't do that. Why? Because that's a human being. No, that's just a human being at a later stage of development. That's all that is. But last time I checked, I'm not allowed just to wild, wild west this thing and somebody takes my parking spot, right? <laughs> you can't shoot, you know, because I'd be like, did you kill that person? I shot at a glob of tissue. <laughs> I ended a clump of cells. No, you shot a person. And even God looks... And even in the unformed substance, he always sees personhood. Next slide. 
So a zygote shows uniquely integrated organism behavior that is not like the behavior of just human cells. It produces increasingly complex structures, tissues, and organs that work together in a coordinated way. Importantly, the cells, tissues, they're produced during development are produced by the embryo as it is directs its own development to more mature stages of human life. So it's, it's nothing that's coming from mom or dad. It, it's producing in itself. And so this organized, coordinated behavior of the embryo is the defining characteristic of a human organism, of a human being. Next slide. So there's our conclusion that we talked about, that life begins at that fusion. It's uncontested and objective, universally accepted. It's independent of anything ethical, moral, political, religious. The scientific view is, yes, that is when life begins. All right, so I'm going to walk through a, uh, a little bit here because when we talk about, oh, it's a clump of cells and what really happens in the stages of developments, right? Because all of us were there at one point. None of us skipped these. We were all there just like we were all teenagers once. Remember telling your kids that? Oh, I was 11 too. And the kids made fun of me at the lunch table. Oh, I was five too when I didn't get to go to bed as late as I want. We could say the same. Oh yeah, we were there too when we were a single cell human organism, human being. We were all there. And so let's look at those because I think, again, one of the greatest uh, false truths that the pro-choice movement tries to go with is it's not really human. It's just like, well, let's look and see what really is going on. Next slide. Uh, and so we're talking about a full humanness beginning at conception, but we're looking at the development. So this is science class. Keep going. So here we go. Ovum, sperm, unite. Next. Next. There we go. So that's the zygote with a one-celled biological entity, right? It's just a stage in human development, just as infinite infancy, childhood, and adolescence. Now, we joke and say things like, oh, my teenager, oh, I just want to end their life because they're a teenager, they're smart aleck, and they mouth off, just like me. But we... We can't end their life just because if they're at a younger stage of development than us, nor on the other side, we can't end somebody's life because if they're an older stage of development, euthanasia of the old, which is definitely a topic that is coming up in our world, right? Donald P., heavy on the P., my man, 92, out serving half of us, you know what I mean? Standing at the door. I mean, could you imagine somebody saying, oh, he's 92, he's the oldest one here, let's just kick him off the cliff because he's old. Yeah, that's called murder. <laughs> and like three-fourths of the church is going to throw down on you. You can't do that. Why can't I? He's, he's in an older stage of development. Well, if you can't do it at an older stage of development, why are we allowed to do it at a younger stage of human development? Do they, and we'll talk about it, do they lose humanness? No, not at all. So again, the gametes, they, they cease to exist at that moment of conception. Next up. Um, so there, there would be a, a true picture, and you already see a little bit of cellular division that's happening right there. Next slide. So there's four criteria um, to establish biological life. Continue. We're going to talk about all these. Genetic code, again, you get from one ovum, male, female, 23 chromosomes from each. So we have a genetic code of 46. And again, so when people want to say my body, my choice, no, it's not. Because that that is in your body has a different genetic code, right? If you grabbed any of my cells from my body, let it be hair cells. I don't know why we're laughing at that, guys, right? 
I got hair, beard hair, back hair. So if it's hair cells, if it's toenails, if it's skin cells, if it's my blood, you would know, oh, here is his genetic code. That's his DNA. That is like that beautiful thumbprint that nobody else shares, nobody else has. It's only mine. And so that even at that one cell, single cell, baby, embryo, fetus, zygote, it has its own genetic code. Nothing else needs to be added. Everything that is needed is there. Now it's just going to start developing into that. So that is not your body, your choice. Now, the only issue you could say is, yeah, your body, your consequence, but it's not your body, your choice. That is a human living being, right? And so uh, from that point, no new genetic information is needed to make the unborn entity an individual human. Everything at that single cell in the DNA structure is there. It's kind of like the one comedian that said, if you take cake batter and put it in a cake pan, put it in the oven, is it a cake right now? No. But if you leave it, it will be. It has all the potential to become a really great cake. If you just leave that baby in the mom, it has, it, it's going to develop into a baby. You know, you, you don't pull like a, a slot machine and be like, maybe I get a giraffe this time. Maybe I get a puppy. No, <laughs> it's going to be a baby every time. Very reliable in that. Next slide. So uh, yeah, chromosomes, next slide. I was trying to be graphic and fun. So the first month, so in the first four weeks, substantial development of brain and nervous system occurs. The brain and spinal cord and the entire nervous system will be established and a majority of abortions are performed during this time, 43% by six weeks. What's your nervous system do? Oh, they can't feel anything, but they have a full functioning nervous system by that time. They can, next slide. And so that's what you're looking at right there. We have eyes, face, there's the amniotic sac, there's the embryo, the fetus, the baby, there's the placenta that they're sitting in. Be like, we have tails? What? No. But that is, if, that'd be kind of a little bit different. You don't have these pictures hanging on your wall, but didn't we all do that when we had the ultrasound of our baby? Oh, look at it, it looks like a foot. It looks like an alien, so that looks like, you know. Is just a pre-development stage in human life. So next slide. Second month, you get eyes, ears, nose, toes, fingers. They start to appear that now they have fingerprints and lines in your hands that develop. The skeleton develops. They get a heartbeat with their own blood and own blood type, right? So reflexes and the lips become sensitive to touch. They're controlling muscle movements. Brain waves can be detected at 43 days after conception. The stomach starts producing digestive juices. Doesn't that sound good? The liver is making its own blood cells. Kidneys are beginning to function. Next. There we go. And so this is what we're looking at right in here. Nine weeks, 36% of abortions are performed between six and nine weeks gestation. This is what's being removed. This baby is what's being removed at that time. Next slide. After the eighth week, no further primordia will form. Everything is already present that will be found in the full-term baby. So whatever is aborted at that eighth week or after, there is no difference structurally than the baby that comes out that we name and love. Nothing is different. It's not a clump of cells. It's not a glob of tissue. That is a baby. Small baby? Oh, very small baby, but still a baby. And so from this point until adulthood, when full growth is achieved, some of us still waiting on that, right? 25, 27 years. Some of us mentally still working on being fully mature. The stages of the body will mainly be in dimension and gradual refinement of the working parts. Everything is there. Next slide. 
So the third month, this is characterized by movement. The unborn begins to swallow, squint, swim, grasp with their hands, move, moving the tongues. Now we're swallowing and we're peeing all over the place. Our vocal cords are completed, right? Fourth month, keep going. Yep, so thir- 12 weeks, this is 12 weeks. This is what a baby would look like at 12 weeks. 13% of abortions are performed between nine and 13 weeks gestation. At this point, uh, you can't use a medical or you can't use a medication abortion uh, that you have to go in and do a DNC that will go in and take hemostats. Sorry if this is graphic, but it's our world. They'll go in and take hemostats and they'll crush the baby's skull and they will cut limbs apart and remove piece by piece. And there is uh, an assistant or a tech that will have to count the number of pieces, put the baby back together out of utero to make sure that they didn't leave anything in because it would cause infection to the mother. Next slide. So glad we came to church this morning. Four or five months. This month is characterized by growth. We got hair, skin, nails develop. We're sleeping, meaning your baby's already dreaming. What do they dream about? Whatever you ate the night before. You know what I mean? I don't like that spicy food. The fifth month, the unborn becomes viable outside the mother's womb. My nephews were born at five months, 25 weeks, three days. Sean held his boys at this. Next slide. That's what a sonogram of a five-month-old would be. Next slide. So your remaining four months, these really are just characterized by growth and development. Now they're going to start to respond to sound, your mother's voice, pain, taste, right? Keep going for me. Real picture. Real picture. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And we praise God for him fearfully and wonderfully made. None of us were accidents. None of us were illegitimate children. Might be illegitimate parents, but not illegitimate children. Next slide. So the conclusion, full personhood begins at conception. A separate human individual comes into existence. There is no decisive break in the continuous development of that human entity until from the moment of conception until death. But again, the pro-choice movement will try to get, uh, let's draw a line somewhere else and let it be conception. And so uh, let's talk through some of those. And how do we respond if we're gonna hold to life? Next slide. How are we gonna hold to life? So here are improper definitions of the autonomy of human life. Viability, brain function, heartbeat, sentience, and birth. These are their top five winning horses that they try to use to allow space to make abortion uh, justifiable. And we're going to respond to everyone. So first is viability. And that's the potential of the unborn to survive outside of the uterus after birth. Let it be natural or induced. Right? So if, it, if the baby doesn't reach viability, then it's okay to abort before. That's the thesis of that idea. How do we respond? Viability does not change essence or being of the unborn. Just because that baby cannot be viable outside of the mother does not cease to be human. It was human at conception. Again, the science matters. And so, yes, viability changes, but humanity remains constant from the moment of conception forward. And so viability, it's, a, it's merely a measure of medical technology, not humanity. And so there's no 
precise determining factor of viability. That's a horrible uh, thought. Next. Brain function. Again, we talked about it. You can detect brain waves at 40 to 43 days after conception. Sometimes your baby's already thinking before you even know you have him. Brain function thesis. The idea is the presence of a functioning brain is the property which makes one fully human. So at brain death, a human being goes out of existence, right? We die, our brain stops working. So why wouldn't the front end of it, the start of brain function, be the beginning of full humanity? Well, how do we respond? A dead brain has no capacity to revive itself, right? When I'm dead, I'm dead. But the developing embryo, the developing baby, the human at an early developmental stage has the natural capacity that we can measure, it's very reliable and predictable, to bring on the function of the brain. And so the embryo contains the natural capacity to develop all human activities, Reasoning, willing, perceiving, all of that. There is a difference between no more, somebody being brain dead and dead, and not yet. And it's so predictable that like, so in pediatrics, this is an example of the predictability of human development. So if a baby is born, this is one thing we'd have to look for. They would have like a little dimple on their ear, right? So when we would see that in a baby, we would have to order a kidney or a renal ultrasound, I mean, I I know the whole like head, shoulders, knees, and toes, this is connected to that, but why would we order a kidney ultrasound if we see a dimple on the ear? Because the ear externally and the kidneys internally develop at the same time. And so the concern is if there's something slightly malformed with any of the ear, we need to look at the kidneys because if it caused malformation here, did it cause malformation to the kidneys? Very predictable. Life-saving measures predictability. Next slide. Heartbeat, kind of the same as the uh, brain waves. The fetal heartbeat can be detected, again, as early as five and a half to six weeks. Unless you're looking for it, sometimes you don't even know you're pregnant and you already got a heartbeat going, right? And so the thesis, obviously, is that heartbeat is the property which makes one fully alive and human, and we understand the idea. If somebody dies and the heartbeat stops, then why wouldn't it be the start of a heartbeat that begins life? Here, how do we respond to that? Similar to the brain function, it has the natural capacity to bring on a functioning heart. Again, there's a difference between no more and not yet. You leave that embryo, you leave that baby, it's one cell, you just leave it be. It will get a heartbeat every time unless something happens. It's natural development, it will have a heart. And think about what kind of implications would this bring to adults who have heart-assisting devices, Right? So if heartbeat defines life, but you need a heart monitor, did you, not just, did you lose humanity or essence? Did you lose value? No. Because then would we not like put laws and be like, oh, if you have a heartbeat, we'll just kick you off the cliff then because we need good beating hearts. No, not at all. Next, birth, I think. Sentience. Ah, the unborn becomes fully human sometime later in brain development where there is, and the sentience is the capacity, uh, capability of experiencing sensations such as pain, and that's when we become sentient. So a being that cannot experience anything cannot be harmed. And so if correct, an unborn becomes fully human during the first trimester, and at best by the third trimester, how do we respond? And this is, this is really great. This view confuses the experience of harm with the reality of harm. The part that those that argue for sentience that they miss they called abortion harm. The baby can't experience harm. What harm are you talking about? 
Oh, abortion is harm? Yeah, abortion is very harmful to the baby. Last time I checked. And so they open up the door that, and that's how I would step into it. So are you calling abortion harmful to that living human organism inside a mother? Yes, it is. But it confuses. One can be harmed without experiencing the hurt that follows that. And you don't have to consciously experience harm in order to be harmed. Think, if correct, a reversibly comatose person, a momentarily unconscious person, shoot, even a sleeping person would not be fully human then. And think about all the times that your spouse drives you nuts. What do we joke about? Oh, just wait until you fall asleep. That if we really put the line in the sand of sentience, the moment they fall asleep, I'll just choke them out because they're ticking me off. Because they're not, they're not fully human if they're sleeping. Do you see the illogical fallacies of this and just how impossible it is? You cannot lose humanness. You are what you are. Next slide. Birth. It's a time at which a human entity becomes fully human is the idea. Society calculates the beginning of existence by your day of birth. Happy birthday. And so after birth, a baby is named and accepted. So yeah, that should be when life starts. Next. The response, activities after birth, naming, baptizing, accepting, those are merely social conventions. One is not less human if abandoned, unnamed, or not baptized. So birth is a horrible line to think that's when life begins. And so our conclusion, human autonomy, personhood, full humanness, whatever way you want to say it, is not a question of where, but of what. Location does not determine being. There is no decisive break in the continuous development of the human entity from conception until death that would make this entity different, a different individual than before birth. So individuals lacking a heartbeat, brain function, sentience, they do not lack humanity. And so that is all consistent with the scientific evidence. And I love the quote, good old Dr. Seuss, a person is a person, no matter how small. That is the scientific way that I think we can push back. And we as the church need to be educated in that. So when we hear viability arguments starting to come up, we can address those. When we hear, oh, it's just tissue and cells, we can push back. And I think we need to. And one of the greatest things that they do in Planned Parenthood clinics is they don't want to show the humanity of that baby. And some of the greatest things that we can do is provide ultrasounds that they can see this is a baby and you have been lied to. It's not a clump of cells. This is a baby. But let's talk about the numbers, right? So we already kind of had the, the beginning part where 878,000 just this year, right? So one every 35 seconds. And so think about, because we hear other arguments of why we should justify abortion because what about the instances of rape, which is an absolute horrible sin. Right? I think a rapist should be castrated, shot, or repent. I have, that is, I think, a horrible sin that has infected our culture. And, and, and it only makes up for about 1% of abortions that are performed, 1%. And then you hear the other argument, well, what about you know, rape? And then the other one is incest. That only makes up for less than half percent of abortions. And the third uh, argument that you'll hear from a pro-choice is, what about when it's medically necessary to save the life of a mother? The short answer to that question, zero. 
the medical science has progressed so much to the point that where an abortion is never necessary to preserve the life or the health of the mother. And this has been true for more than half a century. Abortions performed to preserve life or the health of the mother are so rare that they do not register them statistically. Virtually zero. Remember Alan Guttmacher, who has done more than any other human to provide on-demand abortion? In 1967, right? Some of you were born in that year, and you're looking pretty gray. You know what I mean? Amen. He said, today, it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal disease such as cancer or leukemia, and if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save the life. And so what we're using is highly emotionally charged arguments of rape and incest, which horrible sins, horrible sins. Or we'll use ideas of, what if we, we create these hypothetical moral dilemmas, and then they try to use that as, per se, a straw man to justify abortion. But in a culture, right, and we talk about we all get to speak into the morality of it, we can never let the vast minority dictate the laws for the overwhelming majority. So think that we are like this little culture here at the lake, and we live in a village all together, and these, we're having a town meeting right now. And we're going to talk about what are the moral standards of how we are going to operate. You know, so how are we going to dress? You know, a few of you, you know, we want uh, palm trees, and we're just going to cover vital areas. Others, turtlenecks and sweaters and jeans, and we're going to be completely covered. Right? You know what we wouldn't do? We're not going to go to one person and say, okay, Matt Arnold, you get to dictate how the rest of us live because you're the vast minority. That's, that's really bad. But that's exactly what the pro-choice movement wants to do. They want to they take these emotionally charged hypotheticals and try to dictate to the majority. And so we hear about all of those hypothetical moral dilemmas but it's not rooted in reality. We hear them as if these are the large percentage. And so, so if you do the math, and it's like, okay, why are 98.5% of abortions done? They're on demand. It's for convenience. It is birth control. That is why they are done. But again, understand the lies that are happening you can't lead with that. No, we got to take this emotionally charged reason and then try to argue the existence for all of that. That's just not good ways to lead and organize ourselves. And think, there was, there's three authorities of which God um, ordains for us to exercise authority over man. And one is the government. So it does matter. The laws of our land. And we should be able to speak into the morality of our land. But there's also the church and the family. And I think if those two uh, were a little better, we wouldn't be, have to be so dependent on the other. But what's God's view about all of this? You know, we see from Psalm 139 that he sees personhood in the womb. And even as we talk about God in his personhood, you know, there's three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the Trinity. And we're going to look at each of one of them individually. And so God the Father, what's his view? Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in the womb, he's talking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you aside. Before you were ever intricately 
woven, knitted together. Isaiah 49.1, at the end of that verse, it says, the Lord Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. God never says, oh, I saw a really good potential glob of cells. Ooh, I see a really good little bunch of tissue that I could work through. If only it would develop into a human. No, it is God's design that there would be a very reliable, consistent development from the moment of conception all the way into death of human life. Human life does not, it it doesn't lessen and it's not greater just because of where you're at in the development. We're going to skip to the third person, the Holy Spirit. There's a really cool verse that sometimes we miss. We just talked about, you know, Christmas. We got through the Christmas season. In Luke 1.15, where the angel appears to Zechariah, and he tells him that his wife Elizabeth is going to become pregnant. And, and he tells him this is going to be John, and which we know is John the Baptist. And he tells him all these things that he's going to do and paving the way for the Lord, for the Messiah to come. But you know what else the angel says to him? that the Holy Spirit is going to indwell him even in his mother's womb. So here you have Elizabeth with a pregnant John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit indwells John as he's in utero with Elizabeth. Why is that important? I, I was fully planning to do, that doesn't make sense, session three all the way up to Friday night. And I woke up Saturday morning and the Lord said, that's cute. So I've been studying all Saturday for this, where I was going to mention it, we were going to pray, and the Lord said, no, we're going to use the whole Sunday for this. And so I was doing a lot of research, and what I was trying to find, and, and, and you do your own Bible study, try to correct me, right? Everybody loves to do that. But I could not find any other instance in Scripture where the Holy Spirit indwells anything other than a human. So think about what was said from that angel in the book of Luke to Zechariah that, that he who is in your wife, even in the womb, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell him. And if the Holy Spirit only indwells humans, what is, what is the Holy Spirit's view of humanity and life in the womb? Full humanness. And then you have God the Son, Jesus And I think of the greatest commandment, Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. Every aspect of our life, of our culture, of who we are as apprentices of Jesus, those that are trying to follow Jesus with our life, if we love God and we love our neighbor, if we love God, we will value not just our own lives as a part of God's plan and to do his will, but we're going to value everybody else's life as a part of God's plan to do his will. And so even the life of the unborn And so we will love and care for, not just, you know, the widows and the orphans, but the unborn. And we, as the church, we should tend to and see to the needs of others, even those who are just in an earlier stage of human development, just like we would see to the needs of a baby or a toddler, or it's just an earlier stage of human development. And lastly, we will protect others from harm. That is a call on the church today, is to protect others from harm. Again, it is a spiritual war where we have God who gives life, and the exact opposite, the most anti-God thing, is to take life. 
And so we protect others from harm, whether from abortion, euthanasia, human trafficking, or any other abuses. It is the call of the church not to keep a distance from some of these hot button topics and say, I just don't know enough about it. No, you're a coward. That's what that is. That we as the church are called to stand boldly, but yet we're called to do it with gentleness and with respect. So we don't just stand at the front of the abortion clinic with picket signs. I think there's a better space for the church to be, and that's on the back doors with open, loving arms for those that have made that decision, sadly. I think we should be on the front door accepting and saying, hey, there's another way possible, and we will love you and walk with you through that. Nick, don't you know what you're saying there? That could be really messy. You want a bunch of pregnant, possibly unwed mothers that are living in their sin to fill the church? Yes. And if you don't like that, there's the door. And, but we also need to be on the backside of the abortion clinic for those that have made that decision. Greg Laurie wrote a great article yesterday that I read. And a quote in there, he said, you know, one of the, one of the horrible aspects of abortion is it leaves one dead and another one wounded. And you look at the need for counseling and mental health with not just ladies, but even uh, the fathers, the families that this is wrecked and wreaked havoc on. It is not, oh, my life would be so much better. There's, we know people that have years of trauma because of a decision they made with wrong information, and now they live with the guilt and the condemnation of that. And what I think the church has done horribly is to say, yeah, you're too far gone because you committed that act and we can't have that here. I despise that mentality and we will not have it at Calvary. And so while the sanctity of life can be the foundation, love must be our motivation. John 3.35, Jesus said this very clearly, and let's put it in this context. By this, all people, those that perform abortions, those that support abortions, those that have partaked in abortion in any manner, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have hate for one another? No. That if you pick at these hot-button topics? No. You will know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love from one another. And some of the most loving things that we can do is stand boldly for the truth, but yet we do it with gentleness and respect because this is a very sensitive topic and I hate the mentality, oh, we, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. Think of your sin. Think of your brokenness. Do you have that mentality? Or does your sin and your brokenness sometimes takes on a little bit of your identity? didn't say it's right or biblical, right? Our identity is in Christ alone, but how many of us wear that? And so a lot of times we think, oh, politically, the, the hot button topic of the, the day in the church is the transgender movement or the homosexuality. I think it's here. And, and while those other two are important and the Bible speaks into them and we should stand, I think they're getting so much FaceTime from the enemy. Why? Because at the same time, he's reeling in and ending life. And we need to step into it. And so what do we do? The greatest, most impactful thing that we can do, pray. Really, pastor, of course you're going to say that. You're a pastor. And, and we'll say it theologically. Yes, prayer is powerful. But when we have that kind of mentality, isn't it just full of doubts? 
that we really don't believe that prayer is the most powerful thing that we could do in this? But are we consistently bringing this unto the Lord and asking for intervention? Are we praying for repentance of those that are in that pro-choice movement and whatever? Are we praying for strength and resources and sufficiency for those that are pro-life and let it be like the Pregnancy Help Center and those that are passionate and are called and that is their ministry? Are we praying for them? Are we interceding on behalf of that? Again, are we to say, not my circus, not my monkeys, and you know, because the chiefs are playing today, I got more things to worry about. That's the greatest thing that we can do is the church is to pray. What's the least, what's the simplest response that we could do in, in regard to this topic? Vote. And here's my, here's my political opinion right here. If you don't vote, shut your mouth about the state of our country. That if you, I, my grandfather fought in World War II, Battle of the Bulge, he stood a line. He had PTSD. He struggled after all the things that he saw so that I have freedom. My dad served in the Navy for 10 years. He stood a line that very few of us will stand so that we can have that freedom. And so many times we can think, well, it's, we're just voting for the lesser of two evils. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? You know, are we waiting for Jesus to roll up into the White House? Don't get me wrong. That'd be cool. <laughs> I mean, that'd be cool. You imagine that? I'd be like, donkey, what's the other elephant? Nah, I'm going with the lamb. Here we go. Yeah, we are voting for the lesser of two evils. And personally, I, I believe, but we need to vote. And so many times we say that. Like, oh, my vote's not even going to matter, so why even vote? If everybody that had that mentality voted, the, the, the movement would have shifted. And don't even talk to me about what was stolen or not. We're not even going down that road, right? But we need to vote. And, and, and for me, this is me, right? Way of description, not prescription. Don't be like, oh, this is what my pastor told me to do. No, 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 no. You, you study, you figure out who. But I, when we vote, we're looking at political leaders. But more than anything, I look at platforms and policies. Because I know darn well right now that whoever is leading in a political position, we're probably not going to see eye to eye on everything. But I think about, okay, let me look at this person's platform. And where do we agree on some of the issues that are important to me? That's who I vote for, right? So study and understand not just the person, because we all are horrible people, right? <laughs> for all have sinned and fallen. Oh, that's a, he's just such a horrible political leader. Well, you're not looking too hot yourself, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, just going to call it. Like, who's over here just like floating on water and be like, ah, oh, I'm God's gift to humanity. Like, if you ran, I probably wouldn't vote for you either, you know? Like, the same. Like, that's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. But we're looking at policies and platforms that best reflect the values that we find in Scripture and the values that we want to see in our community, in our nation. Why? Because we get to speak into the, the, the moral fabric of our nation, which right now is moth-eaten and... Don't even... Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Nick. Holy Spirit. <laughs> Lord, put your hand on my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. Here we go. But what do we do? I love this quote in that article. Again, if you follow me on any social media stuff, you can find this article. I shared it from Pastor Greg Lordy, Lori with a harvest out there in California. Jesus Revolution. Amazing dude. Let's also do everything we can to care for families who need it. Caring for moms, and I would say and dads, and children should be a priority of the church more than ever before. And my wife, 
when we were talking through just, you know, ministry and different things, she found that quote that still haunts me, that if you can't adequately staff your kids' ministry area, you're not ready for revival. I said that first service in London. Our kids' director was sitting over there where Chris is at, and she mouthed the words, and we can't. So think about it. Let's say you're a young single mom or you're an out of wedlock or you're in wedlock, whatever it would be, and, and you are pregnant, and this is an unwanted pregnancy, and you are scared and you don't know where to run to, and you're looking around the culture of your life, would you feel like the church is a place to go if they can't even care for the kids that they do have? Or what if you heard about that church? Man, they just love pouring into families. Oh, the really good Christian families that, you know, there's a husband and a wife and two kids and the dog. I mean, that was your life, rock on. That was definitely not my life. <laughs> now, I think the church should be doing everything to care for families because it's a testimony to those, the moment that they have nowhere to go, who would love me where I'm at? And again, if your brokenness, because we say all the time, you know, your brokenness is welcome here. And if you're allowed in here with your brokenness, even though our sin, our brokenness is different, if theirs is allowed, if ours is allowed here, if mine is allowed here, so is theirs. As we think about that, like for, for me, I think uh, at the church level, what I would love to see more is, I think we need to have more baby showers. We need to celebrate when those that could possibly have considered ending life hold to life. Well, pastor, they're out of wedlock. You know, sex before marriage, that's a sin. Yeah, it is. But committing a greater sin doesn't make the lesser sin any better. We're like, well, won't that get kind of a little bit different and weird, you know, and church is celebrating, you know, fornication. I'd rather celebrate, you know, life, even though that's a, it came from that than to, be apathetic and quiet about murder. I've never even been to a baby shower. They never invite the guys. I don't know why, right? <laughs> Four kids never got to go to one. I was like, hey, I'm half the deal in this thing here, right? Because you guys got some good snacks in there. Like, I, I say we hold some baby showers up in here. What about those who have had an abortion? If you look at the numbers, one out of four. Those are the stats. Broad brush, one out of four. What do we say to those? Because sometimes we've made that decision before we knew the Lord. We made that decision out of fear. And again, the, the rates inside the church and the rates outside of the church, there's no difference. How many, how many teenagers run in fear of their parents because they feel like they can't tell them? How many times I've had to hear, oh, they'll disown me. And that says something about your parents, not about you. Did Christ disown us when we ran into our sin? Shepherd your kids well. But what do we say if somebody has had an abortion? And so as I was studying through all this, I read this passage I've read a hundred times before. And when you think about this topic and you read this passage, it just hits a little bit different. If there's grace and forgiveness for my sin, if there's grace and forgiveness for your sin, 
there's grace and forgiveness available in Christ, regardless of whatever sin we have committed. I believe that there is grace, that nobody is too far gone past grace. And how much more does the enemy want us to try to, to choose life, but we choose our own and we end that life. And then not only does that happen, what does he heap up on us? Condemnation. And we say things like there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but how many do you think carry the weight of that decision? We talk about that there is life being in Christ and the spirit sets us free, but how many of us don't feel the fullness of life and we still feel chained by our sin? Would we think that others don't have that same struggle within this? So there's grace and forgiveness. And I would turn to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And here's the verse that took me for a spin thinking about this. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so when you're dealing with somebody that's maybe made that horrible decision, say there's grace and there's forgiveness in the Lord. And here's the beautiful thing. He's uniting all things. Even the baby I aborted? Yes, I believe they are in heaven. And the hope that we have in the Lord is that he is uniting all things in him. Things in heaven. Those that have lost their life due to this evil and those on earth, those that are wounded that walked through that. So there is grace and there is forgiveness in that. And I think it's time for the church to step up and be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And it's time for us to have hard conversations, but it needs to be showered and lavished with grace, that same grace that he lavished upon us, where we we don't condemn, but we share grace, love, and truth in it. And we don't shy away from conversations, but we stand firm. We walk in wisdom, Because you know what the church calls here at Calvary? You know what uh, an unplanned pregnancy that was outside the bounds of marriage that, you know, statistically broad brush would fit the criteria to say, yeah, that criteria produces abortions all in our country every year. You know what we call that person? Pastor. That's my life. But my mom chose life and praise the Lord because there's so many that were in her same shoes that don't. And you call him pastor. And I think it's time for us as the body of Christ, knowing that if, if this is where God's heart, where he, align, we need to align ourselves to his heart and his values. 
And if anything in us is a struggle with that, like I think that's a moment of repentance and examination of our own hearts where we need to realign ourselves to him. And, and if it breaks God's heart, I think it should break ours as well. But I encourage you, don't let it stop here. That we as the whole body, we need to be aware and leaning, praying, voting, supporting the Pregnancy Help Center in Camdenton. We absolutely love and support. Um, they have a chili cook-off coming in March 7th, right? March 7th. Calvary has already registered for it. Yours truly will be cooking, so the best you're going to get is second place. <laughs> I mean, I've won it the last two years. So, yeah. First place overall, then people's choice. Why do we go? Because the chili's so good? I mean, that's a positive, right? Why go to a chili cook-off if it tastes like... Okay, never mind. Because we believe in that organization and we can become prayer partners, we can become volunteers, we can even become advocates. There's even a way that you can sign up that when they have a mom coming in that's considering abortion, they'll send out a text and you can pray at that very moment. And so please research their website, overwhelm them, even just with calls and support and say, hey, you're doing a great work and we're praying for you. Look at the uphill battle that they have. And how are we as the church supporting organizations like that? And how can we step in even with more than just prayer and support? I think it's time for the church to do that because life matters to God. And if it matters to him, I think it should matter to us. Let me pray. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you, Lord. Even as we sit in the tension of our world where we hold fast to your word, your truth, the, your values that you have for our life, but we live this, this kingdom citizen, but we live in a, in a different world where you give life and our world takes life, where you give grace and truth, but our world just brings condemnation and guilt and shame. Lord, it is a struggle and we need you. We need your leading, your guiding. We need your wisdom. We need just, just this inflowing presence of your Holy Spirit for us that we would continue to be your hands and your feet. And at this very moment, Lord, knowing every 35 seconds, it's too much, Lord. So I pray that you would put your hand upon young mothers and fathers that are considering this, that you would bring a change of heart. Pray that you put your hand upon doctors and nurses and techs that work in clinics like this and that you would bring repentance and a change of heart. But Lord, I pray the church would continue to be a voice of hope and love and grace even in a very dark situation. Give us that kind of faith, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...